0: well good morning everyone so good to be with you today today we're going to be continuing our study uh, in the book of acts so if you have your bibles go ahead and uh, flip over to acts chapter six we're going to start in verse number eight and we're actually going to go through the end of chapter seven so roughly seventy or so verses of scripture don't panic. I'm not going to read all those verses. Uh, I'm going to do a lot of summing up as we work through these uh, passages together. Uh, But it's a fascinating text, a fascinating narrative uh, where we learn about uh, the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. So, uh, before we dive into our text today, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Uh, Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to gather in this place, to sing songs of worship, to lift our hands high, to celebrate the fact that Jesus has died for us and has risen again, is seated at your right hand. We're grateful, Lord, to be able to celebrate that fact uh, today. So, as we now approach time in your word, as we worship, as we uh, learn and grow and, and study more about you. God, open up our hearts, our minds to look more like Christ as a result of your Word and your Spirit uh, in us. And as uh, Sam rightly uh, prayed moments ago uh, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision this Friday, we just pray for unity in our nation. Uh, But God, we're so grateful that as we look at your word, God, you clearly have made life uh, at the moment of conception, and we are made in your image. We bear your image, and we're grateful that because of that, all life has dignity. And we pray for unity. We pray for uh, now the states will be making decisions, that they will uh, make laws that will be pro-life, that they will do this wisely. And God, we pray for us as believers that we can approach this time in in a season of Uh, humility and grace as we interact. May we be compassionate. May we reflect the love of Jesus in these conversations. And God, may you ultimately be glorified. And so, God, again, we pray for this time together. Allow me to preach what is right and true. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Uh, Well, moments ago, you heard me mention that Stephen was the first Christian martyr in that we see in history, in Scripture, and we're going to learn a little bit more about that today. So, I guess the question we need to start with, though, is what exactly is a martyr? What does this term actually mean? Well, if you look at one dictionary, it'll say that a martyr is one who dies or is persecuted for his or her faith or convictions. Now that's probably what we understand to be a martyr. It's probably not new information for most of us in the room. What we may not know is that the word martyr is actually from the Greek word martis, and it means to be a witness. It's one, if we think about this in a court of law, it's one who would bring about a testimony or a witness in a trial regarding a certain series of events. It was someone who would stand trial. Now, if we think about this in the Christian context then, a a martyr is one who is giving a witness or a testimony and subsequently and consequently loses or suffers, loses his or her life, or suffers for the cause of Christ. This is what a martyr is. We're going to learn about one today. What's interesting, though, is history is filled with martyrs, those who have given the ultimate uh, sacrifice, who have given their lives for the cause of Christ, for the name of Jesus and put in the midst of perilous situations, refused to recant and deny the reality that Jesus was their Lord and Savior. I think of Polycarp. Polycarp was a well-known martyr in Christian history who was burned at the stake and then stabbed to death because he refused to deny Christ and also call Christ's followers atheists. He refused to do that, and he suffered martyrdom. How about the disciples? We heard a little about their history already in this series. All the disciples suffered this fate, minus John who was—it was attempted. He was boiled, but then survived and was uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But we think of Peter, who was crucified, probably upside down. Uh, Matthias, who was beheaded, or depending on what you read, was boiled, or chopped into, or hanged. There's a lot of legends surrounding Matthias, but he was martyred as well. Mark, dragged through the city, dragged to pieces, But it wasn't just the disciples. Countless others have had the same fearless faith, have withstood really tumultuous times, really perilous times, and stood firm in the reality that Jesus was their Savior and His message was worth dying for. So we're going to learn about Stephen today, because we see in the midst of really difficult circumstances, Stephen has fearless faith. And so, the message that I want to communicate today is is I want all of us to leave this room having a deepened sense of fearless faith, to stand firm on the reality that Christ is our Savior no matter what may come through our doors, no matter what difficulty may enter our life. So, I'm going to start in chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 8 to 15, and then we're going to move into chapter 7. I'm going to do a lot of summing up through chapter 7. We're going to read a few verses here and there, but we're going to start in chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Listen to what these verses say. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face, Stephen, was like the face of an angel. Now, we're going to learn a little bit more about this in the upcoming weeks. We're actually introduced to Stephen in chapter 5 of verse 6. The disciples were selecting a group of people that were to serve the tables of neglected widows. They wanted people of high rapport, high reputation, a good moral character, those that were following Christ. Stephen fit this list. So, he was to serve, essentially, the office of a deacon, serving the neglected widows so the disciples could continue preaching the gospel. And Then we get into verse number eight, and we get some more insights into the character that Stephen had. But Stephen's character says that he was full of grace and power. And in the midst of this, in the midst of his ministry, he was doing signs and wonders among the people. So Stephen, although called to serve as an office of a deacon serving the tables, he was doing much more than that. He was proclaiming the message of Jesus. God was using him in powerful ways to do signs and wonders among the people. God was really moving through Stephen, and Stephen was having an incredible time of ministry. He was called to serve. What a wonderful ministry, a necessary ministry, a needed ministry. But God chose to use him in such momentous ways in this moment, in this season. And as the ministry of Stephen begins to grow and the momentum begins to grow, there's a group of people from the synagogue of the freedmen who began to dispute his preaching. They were challenging what Stephen was saying. Well, who are these individuals? What is the synagogue of the freedmen? Well, this is a group of people who were once slaves or descendants of slaves, but now they're free. They've been redeemed. They've been uh, brought back. They've been released from their slavery, probably under Roman rule. They're also Greek-speaking Jews. They're Hellenists, just like Stephen was. But their theology couldn't have been more different. They disputed Stephen at every point. They did not embrace the message of Christ. They rejected him in, in every way. But I love what Scripture says. Scripture says that they could not oppose the wisdom that he was sharing because he was speaking in the power of the Spirit. The message of the Gospel, Christ's message was going to move forward. There's nothing that this group could do to change that. So in order to try and squelch the message, in order to kind of tamper the flames, what what they did is they stirred up a frenzy by, by basically bringing false accusations against Stephen. They're saying he's he's a blasphemer, he's saying blasphemous words against God, against Moses. And as the word of Stephen's blasphemy, his false blasphemy, began to spread, so too did the frenzy. And the frenzy grew so much, and the anger grew so much that they actually apprehended Stephen and brought him before the council, and where he was to stand trial for these accusations. And it was, a, it was here where these false witnesses say that he never stops to, to speak against the temple. He never stops to speak against the customs of, of the law, of the law of Moses. Now Stephen was speaking in regards to the new covenant. He was speaking the message of the Gospel. He was speaking the message of Jesus. And these groups of people could not wrap their head around it. They were spiritually blind. They thought that Stephen was saying, he's going to destroy the law. He's going to destroy the temple. Everything we hold near and dear, he's going to destroy. But Stephen is speaking in reality of the gospel. He's speaking in reality of, listen, there's no more need for yearly sacrifices. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. There's no more need to to think of uh, worship in terms of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. We worship Christ. We find salvation in Christ alone. He is the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb. But the council, the synagogue, uh, the scribes, all these people that were accusing him, they were just blind to the spiritual reality. Much like the Pharisees were blind to the reality of Jesus and accused him of blasphemy as well. It's the same lack of... A vision. Well, once these accusations are made, Stephen has a conversation with the high priest. Essentially the high priest asks Stephen, hey, are these accusations true or are they not? Are you guilty or are you innocent? And this is when we start beginning to transition to chapter 7. This is where Stephen begins to share his remarks in this regard. Are you guilty or are you innocent? Stephen does something pretty remarkable. He actually walks through thousands of years of, of the, the history of Israel. He begins to walk through certain significant points in her history and begins to give his rebuttal and begins to share his defense from the position of Scripture. He's going through the entire history. He starts with Abraham. First, he starts with Abraham, begins to recount some of the history here. And I think this is completely intentional. This was—if you were to read chapter 7 from beginning to end, you might ask yourself, why in the world is Stephen sharing so much Old Testament? I really don't get it. It's so intentional, and Stephen is making such a powerful point, and he's speaking directly to the heart of where this council is and the charges that are brought against him. Notice what he begins to say in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to them, go out from your land and from your kindred, and go to the land that I will show you. what's the significance of this? Remember some of the sticking points of the council. You're speaking against Moses. You're speaking against God. Their accusation was, was the temple. You're speaking against the temple, the holy place, and the law. And so, the council's interpretation was that God can only move and speak in the confines of the temple. In their minds, God's glory was most revealed in the temple, in this holy place. But where does Stephen draw their attention? He draws their attention to Mesopotamia. See God's glory was revealed to Abraham in Mesopotamia, in a pagan land. Stephen goes on to say that Abraham didn't even set one foot in the promised land. Yet in spite of that fact, God's glory was revealed to him. In spite of that fact, God was faithful to Abraham all of his days. See Stephen is is redirecting and correcting some incorrect thinking. Because God is not confined to a building, God's promises were not more uh, not exclusive to a single group of people. It was more expansive than that. The council was was misinterpreting what was happening here. Geography doesn't limit who God is. So when Stephen was speaking to the council, essentially his message is God's glory isn't limited. That's the message to the council. God's glory isn't limited. And I think that's a message that still rings true today. God's glory isn't limited. God's provision isn't limited to a certain building or to a certain geography or to a certain uh, group, people group. His provisions are for all of His people, those who profess faith in His Son, Jesus. And what an encouragement to us. What an encouragement to us even here today that God has revealed His glory to us, revealed Himself to us. Of course, He has revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus. He has revealed Himself through His Word. He has revealed Himself through creation. God's power and God's glory certainly isn't limited and can't be confined to the boxes that sometimes we put Him in. And this is what Stephen is sharing. God's glory isn't limited. God's glory isn't limited one bit. He's making some very powerful theological points, and Stephen is just getting started. See, after he shares some time uh, spending—some time reciting the history of Abraham, he moves a bit further into history and begins to share about Joseph, Abraham's great-great-grandson. Notice how he continues moving down to verse number 9. And the patriarchs—this is the tribe of Israel, the the brothers of Joseph—jealous of Joseph—sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household." Now this is where the imagery becomes a bit clearer to the council. Stephen is being very direct with his history. Now that he has established that God isn't limited to a geography, he is now sharing that, listen, not only is God not limited, he can, he's expansive, his glory is revealed where he wants to reveal it. But oftentimes our people have rejected him. Now he's talking about how Israel has rejected God over and over and over. Now, if you were to read the Genesis account of Joseph, you will notice, as Stephen rightly shares, that it was his brothers that sold him into slavery because of their jealousy. They rejected Joseph, sold him into slavery. It also shares pretty clearly that God was with Joseph, but not the brothers. Favor and wisdom were on Joseph but not the brothers. Now, maybe you've already noticed some of the comparisons that Stephen is trying to make in this text to this council. They're listening to Stephen speak. They're no doubt drawing the lines together. I see a couple of comparisons with what Stephen is sharing here. First of all, this is how the council is treating Stephen. Just like the the brothers, the patriarchs, sold Joseph into slavery because they did not like the message. They They were jealous of him. They're treating Stephen the same way. They have jealousy in their heart. They have angst in their heart. they made false charges against Stephen. They're treating him cruelly. Remember, Stephen has also been described as full of wisdom and power, just like Joseph. I think a second comparison we see is this is how they responded to Jesus. This is how they treated Christ. Jesus was full, is full of wisdom and power, just like Joseph. Right? Jealousy. Not responding to the message well, considering him a blasphemer. And Stephen would actually go far to say, you are actually responsible for his death. You murdered him, is what Stephen says. Just like Joseph, they treated him cruelly, sold him into slavery, considered him dead. And even though the brothers rejected him, God used Joseph to save Israel. In seven years of plenty, Joseph was harvesting the grain, setting it aside. So, when the seven years of famine came, he was able to give people food. Jesus was rejected by the Sanhedrin, rejected by, uh, the, by Jerusalem, rejected by Israel, suffered a horrific death, yet rose again to save all who would believe in him. Now Stephen is being rejected by the council and acknowledging that in the presence of God right now in this moment, you're rejecting, you're treating me like you treated Jesus, you're treating me like our fathers treated Joseph. He's drawing some lines together. He's, he's making this very clear for the council, and the blood pressure begins to grow. The anger begins to swell a little bit more, but Stephen still continues. This is a guy who has fearless faith. He's just going to keep sharing the message of Scripture. Because once he has shared about Joseph and his brothers, the patriarchs in our text, then he begins to share about Moses' history. What's one of the sticking points of the council? You're speaking bad, blasphemous about the temple, and you're speaking bad about Moses. And where is Stephen going? Okay, let's talk about Moses now for a sec. He's going right there. See, Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. The population began to grow. Power changed hands. They forgot about the favor with Joseph, and it just became really, uh, really trying for the, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. They were in, in slavery. They were in bonds. It was a terrible time for them to be enslaved. And in the midst of this chaos, Moses is born. He's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in this palace. Well, obviously knowing growing up that he's a Hebrew, he looks a bit different, talks a bit different. He's just different. And he notices that his people, his ethnic people, are being treated very terribly. And as Moses sees this injustice, becomes so angry that one day he actually kills an Egyptian guard. But it wasn't done in secret. Was actually, there was actually witnesses to this crime. And rumors begin to spread, and the word began to spread that Moses had killed the guard. And because Moses was scared because of what might happen, he fled the the land of Egypt and went to a place called Midian, where he would meet a girl, get married, and become a shepherd for his father-in-law's sheep. Now, while Moses was tending his father-in-law's sheep, Moses encountered God in a burning bush. And the Lord told Moses, deliver my people out of the slavery of Egypt because I've heard their cries. I've listened to them. I've heard them. I've seen them. It's time to deliver them. I want you to do this. Now, after Moses and God has some dialogue back and forth, Moses relents and does what God says. As as, as Stephen is recounting the history of Moses, I think he's making one clear distinctive point. He's saying, just as you are now re- re- refusing to hear my message, this is nothing new. Israel refused to hear the message of Moses. Right? Think about uh, through the Exodus account. As Moses was leading them out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, what were the people complaining about? That their eyes, their minds, their hearts, it was sent back to Egypt." Moses, I'm, I'm glad we're free, but wow, at least we had some food there. Things were a little bit better back in Egypt. At least we weren't hungry. We had what we needed, kind of better to be enslaved than to be out here free, kind of scrimping and scraping to get by. They rejected the, the, the word of God. They, not only that, but they were turning to idols. This is how Stephen says this in verse number 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us, and our fathers refused to obey him. Again, that's the rejection of the the word. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, "'Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him.' And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the work of their hands." They go back to idolatry. They're refusing to obey the Word of God. They're just totally rejecting the message of Moses. He was rejected. Stephen was rejected. Jesus was rejected. Now, he's going back to Moses, one of the sticking points of the accusation. He was rejected. But he's not quite done. See, not only is Moses saying, hey, you were given the oracles of God. You were given the instruction by God. You were given manna from God. You also had the tabernacle, or the tent of witness. And everywhere you went, God went with you. This was the place, this was the temporary place that that would travel with the nation of Israel. They would erect it each place they stopped to worship God. This was their their portable church. This is where they worshiped the Lord, and God was with them. You even had that, right? This was all the way through the conquest of Joshua. It was David who wanted to build a permanent structure, a temple for the Lord, but God said no, and so it was ultimately Solomon who built the first temple. But up until that point, it was, it was mobile, it was the tabernacle. That was where they worshiped God, and God went with them wherever they go. Again, this is one of the sticking points of the council. Not only is it the law of Moses, but it's also the place of worship, the temple. So Stephen is, is saying, listen, we're not dishonoring Moses, we're not dishonoring Moses designing the holy place. We're, we're redirecting some thoughts here. You notice what Stephen says next in verse number 48. He begins to quote the prophet Isaiah as he begins to nail this point home. Listen, it's not about the the place of worship. It's not about what you think it is. Verse forty, it says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Now the pieces are coming together. The picture is becoming clear for the council. Notice the correlation. God did not reveal himself to Moses in the promised land, but in a land far from Jerusalem, just like Abraham, just like Joseph. God did not reveal himself to Moses on Mount Zion, but on Mount Sinai. And then Moses proceeds to lead his people out of Egypt, signs and wonders done in a faraway land, in a pagan land. The tabernacle represent how God moved with his people. So, what's Stephen's point? What's Stephen trying to get at? Why would he share so much of this history? Stephen is saying, again, God is not confined to a single building or to a single group of people. And we see as he's driving this, this nail home, and it, when it says in verse number 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Remember, that's the sticking point of the council. He's talking bad about, about the temple. So now Stephen's quoting Isaiah. God is a stay in houses built with hands. What is He saying? The council, the synagogue of the freedmen, the people He's addressing in this time, He's he's, he's saying you're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping the wrong thing. You're not worshiping the one true God. Much like the people of Israel made a calf of, of gold to worship, you've been worshiping the temple and not the Lord. You've been worshiping your traditions and not the Lord. You've been worshiping your ideas and not the Lord. Your worship has been misdirected this whole time. It's not what you think it is. Stephen has just struck at their idolatry, and he's used the whole history of the nation of Israel with him to share with them, you're worshiping the wrong God. You're worshiping the wrong thing. And if there's any doubt to this, listen to how Stephen addresses this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Remember, he just gave us a long history of this. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That's a shorter list, probably, is what Stephen's saying. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. See, Israel has a well-documented history of rejecting God and worshiping idols. And now Stephen is saying to the council, you have done and are doing the same thing. You are are an idolatrous people. You are a stiff-necked people, much like Moses would communicate to the children of Israel in his time. It's about idolatry. You're worshiping the wrong thing. You've been caught up in the wrong thing. It's not about idolatry. It's not about what we set up. It's about worshiping God. That's fearless faith. That is fearless faith. Addressing a group of people with misdirected thinking, with with incorrect thinking, and and trying to get them back on the right path and redirect their heart, redirect their their minds to the reality of we worship Christ alone. Christ did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. When Christ was referring to the temple, He was referring to His own body being destroyed and being risen again in three days. This is the reality. It's the Gospel. We're worshiping the wrong things. It's not about the building. It's not about this area or that area. It's about worshiping the one true God. Stephen is, is just are very articulately and compassionately and graciously calling this out. You know, it takes a lot of courage to tell someone that they're not living a life honoring to the Lord, doesn't it? Maybe you've experienced that before. A friend or a, a disciple of some kind comes alongside of you and says, hey, I see this in your life. Let's work on this. Let's give this to the Lord. Let's repent of this. Let's move on. Let's look more like Christ. Oftentimes, those things can hurt. If you're like me, my response is, don't tell me, right? I'm, I get puffy, and I'm like, I don't want to hear it. I got this. I'm on, I'm on my own. I don't need your help. I don't want help. Like, this is the, the thing that I'm working through. It hurts sometimes. But we have a proverb that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, that comes alongside of us, that, that shows us our blind spots. Stephen is showing this counsel their blind spots. You're in idolatry. You're worshiping the wrong thing. Let's get on the right path. Let's talk about the message of Jesus. We need those people in our life. May you and I be faithful to listen to the exhortation of our friends that speak truth into our life rather than rejecting it. And because if we look at the end of the narrative, we see exactly this is is what the council does. This is what this group of people does. Notice how our narrative ends starting in verse number 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this group of people responded in the very opposite way we want to respond in in those situations, right? In fact, they became so angry that Scripture says they began to shout, and they plugged their ears. They stopped their ears. They literally put their hands over their ears and rushed at Steve. That's what that phrase, stop their ears, means. They did not want to hear the message. See, I think when people speak into our life, at least this is Isaiah's problem, sometimes I want to stop my ears. I like, I like this. I'm in this. I don't, I don't need help, right? But God is, is showing us through this narrative, well, let's not plug our ears to the reality of gospel truths, to the conviction of the Spirit. We don't want to plug our ears to those things. We want to handle that with humility and grace and approachability and allow God to do a work in our heart. But this group of people, they plug their ears, blinded spiritually. They moved Stephen out of the city. They stoned him. The first martyr of the faith is known. We're also introduced to another character in this this text named Saul. Saul is going to play a vital role in uh, the rest of the book of Acts, starting in chapter 9 when he is uh, uh, remarkably converted. And you're going to see the ministry of Paul and how the kingdom is expanded through the ministry of Paul. But we're first introduced to him here in the stoning of Stephen as they're laying their garments down at his feet. We see some interesting things happening here. We're noticing as Stephen is is on his last breath in the last few moments of his life that he's looking up into heaven, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He's standing. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we read that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So, how can Jesus be sitting and standing at the same time? What in the world does this mean? Well, I think when we see Jesus sitting and we see Jesus standing, it's a representative and a picture of the multiple roles that Jesus is serving. When it comes to this idea of sitting, it does mean that the the work of salvation is complete. Jesus paid it all. The work is finished. When He accomplishes, He went to the Father and sat down at His right hand. Work is over. Work is done. And I think when we see Jesus standing, it's His role as the great high priest, the intercessor for man. He is operating. He is actively serving as our great high priest. We also see this in the book of Hebrews as well, don't we, in verse 415. Jesus is our great high priest. And so, when Stephen gets this vision of Christ, he sees Jesus operating in his role as the great high priest, making intercession, attentive, aware, acknowledging what is happening in this moment with his servant Stephen. Something else I find interesting in the text is is how Luke is is comparing the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen. Notice some of the the similarities. When Jesus is getting ready to die, what does he do? He commends his spirit to the Father. Father, take my spirit. What does Stephen do? Father, I commend my spirit to you. This is my spirit. As Jesus is being crucified, and the, the mockery is happening, and And the brutality is happening to Christ. What does Jesus do? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, as the rocks are being hurled at him, what does he do? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We see the correlation. How Luke is bringing this this history together. Stephen is a wonderful example of a disciple. And not only was he going to live for Christ with all of his might, he was even willing to die for Christ. He was even willing to give his life for Christ in a remarkable way. Stephen was a man of courageous, fearless faith. One example that we can learn from and grow from and be encouraged by. So we hear a narrative like this. It's a tough passage. It's a heavy passage. We see a a brother giving his life for his faith, giving his life for Christ. So what do we take away from this? We read a narrative like this. We study a narrative like this. What is it that we can take away? Now there's probably a lot of things we can take away. I want to just mention three. The first takeaway that I want to share with us is this. We need to anticipate troubles and hardships in our life. We need to anticipate troubles and hardships in our life. We will have troubles. As we have already expressed the course of the series, trouble and trials and oppression, um, potentially persecution, that could be a reality for Christ's followers. Now, in the U.S., we've largely been protected from this. We've largely not experienced this. But even now, in this moment, we have brothers and sisters around the world who who live with the reality of persecution every single day. We have brothers and sisters being martyred for the faith every single day. Trials, hardships, it's going to come through the pike. It's going to come through our doors. We need to anticipate that. Jesus says, in this world you have trouble. In this world you have trials. Again, we think about all the many martyrs, all those who've been persecuted, the disciples. We went through a little bit of th- that history. We think about that. It's going to come to us as well. We need to anticipate troubles and hardships in this life. But that leads me to the second takeaway. And that's we need to stand firm on the truth of God's word. Stand firm on the truth of God's word. Notice that Stephen had a deep and thorough understanding of Scripture. He spent that whole chapter essentially working through Scripture, going through Old Testament narrative after Old Testament narrative, building the reality of you're you're in idolatry, you're worshiping the wrong thing, you're rejecting Christ, right? He had a deep and thorough understanding of Scripture. So, when the difficulties came, when the persecution came, ultimately when the martyrdom came, he stood firm on God's Word. Trials are going to come, hardships are going to come, persecution may come. We want to stand firm on God's word. When the ground beneath us begins to shake, it's scripture that anchors us. It's Christ that anchors us. We learn about this through his word. Let's be in the word, study the word, know the word, live the word, memorize the word. It is the word that will anchor us to the ground. Let's stand firm on the truth of God's word. And finally, a third takeaway we can pull from this text is we need to understand That we have a savior who is lovingly and compassionately looking at us and engaged in our troubles and our hardships. One of the most moving parts for me in this narrative is when Stephen receives the vision of Christ standing and and observing. See Christ was not disconnected. Christ was not disengaged. Stephen was not somehow missed and lost in the cracks somehow. Like Stephen was very much observed by Jesus. Christ observes us in our trouble. He, he compassionately interacts with us in our trouble. In that moment of, of just the final moments of Stephen's life, he was encouraged with the fact of knowing that Jesus is with me. Jesus is looking at me. Jesus is engaged in my hurt. Jesus is engaged in my trouble. Jesus does not step back when the, when the going gets tough. No, He interacts. He engages. He's observing. He is compassionately moving and stepping into those spaces. So, hardships are going to come, and we have the Word of God to be our anchor, to be our, our steady ground, to be our, our point of, of just solid standing. And we have Christ, our Savior, who is benevolently, graciously, compassionately observing us in the moments of those difficulties. I pray today, as we interact with those things, that we see these different things come through our door, as the the world around us gets a bit darker, and the the light of Christ gets a bit brighter, that we can stand firm. We stand firm on God's truth. We stand firm in the reality that we serve a loving, attentive, glorious Savior. Let's anticipate trouble. Let's stand firm in the Word. Let's worship our Savior together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're so grateful for this message of Stephen. God, is challenging, it's convicting as we wrestle with the many uh, aspects to this message. He wrestles with idolatry. He wrestles with the rejection of God's word. He, re- he wrestles with our pride. He wrestles with so many things. And so, God, as we examine our hearts and observe what may be in our hearts, Lord, I pray that we can approach this with humility and with grace as we look at the reality that, God, it's only through Christ alone. That we're able to conquer these things. Only through the work of the Spirit in us, uh, moving us more, more and more to the image of Christ that we're able to grow in this sanctification process. And so, God, as we're dealing with these things, I pray that we lean more and more into your word. God, we are aware of the reality of an observant, compassionate, caring Savior. And God, as we see troubles come through our door, we can just stand firm and have courageous faith, just like the example in our text today, Stephen. So, be with us, God. Allow us to look more like Christ today. In his name we pray, amen.